Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the MMR vaccine and autism link thoroughly debunked, spray-on glass, and how sperm fire proton torpedoes. First, here's Victoria Bond. <laughs> Low levels of a brain chemical called serotonin have been linked with sudden infant death syndrome, also known as SIDS. Serotonin is commonly known for affecting mood, um, but researchers at the Children's Hospital of Harvard Medical School found that babies who died of SIDS had lower levels of serotonin and serotonin-producing enzymes in their brainstems. SIDS kills about 2,500 infants annually and is the leading cause of death in that age group. They found that SIDS often occurs when children are um, put face down to sleep and they suffocate to death. And what the researchers are wondering is whether the low levels of serotonin could be a cause because serotonin could be responsible for regulating the breathing cycle in these children. So what they're suggesting is SIDS occurs in children who already have this low level of serotonin, so they already have trouble breathing, and then they're put in this compromising position and they can't write themselves. It's, it's interesting research, and um, it links up with previous studies that showed that infants who have SIDS also have fewer serotonin receptors in their brain, and also studies that showed that mice that have uh, low serotonin tend to die unexpectedly as pups. In other news, Iran launches animals into orbit. Uh, a missile recently got sent off with a rodent, some turtles, and worms 500 kilometers above the Earth. Now, they claim it's for scientific experiments, but um, there's been a lot of brouhaha considering whether it's, it's actually about the, the rodents <laughs> or whether it's to help develop technology to launch long-range ballistic missiles. So that remains to be seen. I guess we'll have to see what kind of research comes back from, uh, from the launching of the rocket. Why do we all want to be up there, up there? What is there to do or see up there, up there? Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. There's a lot of who knows what away up there. Now that I think of it, why do we want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know. And we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. 
Research rejects the 80-year-old theory of the primordial soup as the source of life on this planet. You've probably read in your textbooks that the first organisms in life started off in this warm, soupy, liquidy environment. But what researchers actually found that was that um, it would technically be impossible for various bits and bobs that the cell needs to to work to actually get together. And they they started looking around the Earth for a source of energy that would um, potentiate this life. And what they found was um, it's the hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor could provide the sort of energy that would bind all of these different elements together and and produce a cell. And when they actually looked at at the vents, they found um, a really interesting honeycomb kind of structure that mimics actually the the gradients and the shapes of our cells. And they, they linked that back to the fact that there are all sorts of different organisms on Earth, but remarkably, all of our cells seem to be very similar in terms of size and shape. So that's some interesting uh, new theories coming up. Uh, the hydrothermal vents uh, reminds me of the speculation about life on Europa, where they think there's not enough sunlight there, but there are liquid oceans of water, and there are hydrothermal vents on the moon of Europa, so that perhaps life could evolve there in a similar way to the way it started evolving here. If it had a, a light source, though. Well, it gets energy from the hydrothermal vents. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to have a light source. Yeah, well, the, the article never mentioned um, sunlight having anything to do with it, so... No, there's, yeah. there's no sunlight down there. No, that's true. Um, life I- around hydrothermal vents in the deep oceans of the world get by without any sunlight at all. They entirely get all their energy from the sulfur compounds in the hydrothermal vents, so the sun doesn't enter into their little eco-cycle at all. I've always been interested in whether life actually evolved down near the thermal vents and stayed there, or whether it evolved on land and then sort of adapted and slowly migrated to exist down near the hydrothermal vents. Could could life actually start uh, with no sunlight, or does it have to have started with sunlight and then eventually adapted to, to the lack of sunlight? Well, I think this is what your story is about. Yeah, well, I think um, <laughs> I think it's it's sunlight would only really be important as a source of energy. And, and what Ian was saying earlier is that the hydrothermic vents do provide a source of energy in terms of heat and movement and sulfur and things like that. So there wouldn't necessarily need to be sunlight. They might have colonized the sunlit areas later. Yeah. It, there's, also, there's also a theory that uh, life started a number of times on Earth, which would be really interesting. Yes, yes, it seems that in our history, well, even before the Precambrian, it looks like life started on Earth, we got bombarded by meteorites and it wiped it out, and then it started again, and then it got wiped out again. This happened lots of times before life managed to keep hold and keep going. And it's interesting to think that the way we're patterned, and and mammals and animals and even plants, um, is really kind of a fluke. I mean, if you look at organisms from the Precambrian explosion, or, or even before that, they're completely alien-looking. Very different body shapes, and even just basic things that we take for granted, like having a head 
most of the body shapes didn't have a head. And what they're what they were saying is, um, it, it could just be this this source of practice in, in the early histories of life. I mean, you know, trying out all of these different ways of of doing things, and then kind of settling on one that's pretty stable and, and works all right for most people. So, and some of it's just totally arbitrary by chance. Mm. One thing that I had learned was um, in my undergrad. They they postulated that life could start with clay rather than a primordial soup because clay provides, um, like like my article was saying, it provides um, a negative gradient for for proteins or or RNA molecules to kind of get attracted to because they're positive molecules and so that gives a, a sort of scaffolding of order for which um, life to to start on, up on. It's oh, very interesting. Awesome stuff. I mean, they've shown before that a lot of amino acids and other basic building blocks um, are all the time created in dust clouds in space. That's right, they found them on comets. Yeah, all sorts of otherwise extreme environments. So once you've got some sort of environment where there's scaffolding to actually build something more stable, maybe it just happens. We've got a story about spray-on liquid glass that's about to revolutionise almost everything. So, spray-on liquid glass is transparent, non-toxic, and can protect virtually any surface against almost any damage from hazards such as water, ultraviolet radiation, dirt, heat, and bacterial infections. It's flexible, breathable, and it's suitable for use on an enormous array of products. So it's made of almost pure silicon dioxide, silica, which is the main compound in glass. According to the manufacturers, liquid glass has a long-lasting antibacterial effect because microbes landing on the surface can't divide or replicate easily. It was invented in Turkey, and it's, the patent is owned by Nanopool, a German company. The liquid glass spray produces a water-resistant coating only 100 nanometers, 15 to 30 molecules thick. In trials of the spray... The food processing companies have found that sterile surfaces that normally need to be cleaned with strong bleach to keep them sterile needed only a hot water rinse if they were coated with liquid glass. The levels of sterility were higher for the glass-coated surfaces and the surfaces stayed sterile for months. Liquid coating is breathable, so it can be used on plants and seeds. Trials in vineyards have found spraying vines increases their resistance to fungal diseases, while other tests have shown sprayed seeds germinate and grow faster than untreated seeds, and coated wood is not attacked by termites. Insulin flowers. Canadian scientists at the University of Calgary are working on a cheaper alternative way to making insulin using plants, using safflowers. Safflowers produce the insulin in their seeds, which are ground up to extract the insulin. The trials on human volunteers have proved effective, 
and an acre of safflowers could produce more than a kilogram of insulin, which could treat 2,500 diabetic patients for one year. Biophysicists at the University of California in San Francisco have discovered the way that sperm are activated via a special protein channel that ejects protons. The discovery could pave the way for a male fertility control. Now, sperm in the male reproductive system are quiescent. They're just lying there, not doing much, and they don't swim around. Now, we've known for some time that they're activated and they start swimming around when they reach an alkaline environment, such as in the female reproductive tract. But what's just been discovered is the way that this happens. There's a special protein called HV1, which is a proton gate. What happens is that when sperm cells are in the male reproductive tract, the pH is around 6, slightly acidic, and the sperm cells have a concentration of protons a thousand times higher than their outside environment because of that acidity. Then when they reach an alkaline environment, this protein HV1 is activated and it starts ejecting protons at a rapid rate. Now what this does is it increases the pH of the cell. So the pH of the cell that would have been below 6.5 rises and once it reaches 6.5, this actually activates the flagella, or the tail of the sperm, so they start swimming. So they can start making a little bit of progress, and this HV1 keeps on shooting out protons. Once the inside of the cell reaches a pH of 7, that's neutral, then another channel is opened, and this is a calcium ion channel, and this calcium can combine with the flagellum, and that and this hyperactivates the flagellum. So the beating of this tail of the sperm actually accelerates and basically goes nuts and, and goes all asymmetrical and crazy. And that's when the sperm actually have enough energy to be able to tunnel through the, the, the coatings of a female ovum and fertilize an egg. Now what's really interesting is that this proton gate, HV1, is really easy to express in other cells. Now this means that it can be, it can be spliced into other cells, um, such as human embryonic kidney cells, which are really easy to culture in the lab and to also conduct tests on. So rather than having to do a lot of fiddly work with human sperm that are asymmetrical and hard to deal with, pharmacological companies will be able to conduct a large number of tests on HV1, on HV1 when it is expressed in human embryonic kidney cells. So the idea of all this research is that drug companies are going to be able to test a large number of compounds on this HV1 to see if they can find one that controls it and hopefully can control male fertility. But wait, there's more. The researchers also found 
that HV1 is activated and sperm are activated by endocannabinoid anandamide. Now this is a compound that occurs naturally in the human body, but it's also a chemical equivalent of the active substances in marijuana. So it's possible, but it hasn't been proven yet, that this HV1 protein is the long search for link between heavy marijuana use and reduced male fertility. So it sounds like if you were trying to promote fertility, like an in vitro fertilization, that if you were just getting, well, you might be able to rev up the sperm to increase your chances of the in vitro fertilization uh, with the alkaline triggers. Yeah, and it's, um, what, what's also interesting is that there were other things that inhibited the activation, and an important one, uh, a very effective inhibitor, was apparently zinc. Uh, so zinc is present in very high concentrations in uh, human semen, and it's not until the sperm reach uh, quite sort of, uh, you know, reach quite deep into the sort of fallopian tubes that that zinc concentration lowers, and that's when the hyperactivation can start. Okay, so what you're thinking perhaps they could do something to reduce the zinc or inactivate the zinc to produce some sort of contraception? No, no. The zinc actually... The, the zinc inhibits oh, the sorry, activation. Yes. So more of it. <laughs> more, more zinc, yes. More, eat more zinc. But I, I think, you know, the, the point really is that they're going to be able to uh, possibly test a large number of compounds uh, to try to control this HV1... They can target gateway. this one area. They, they can target it, absolutely. You block it up or react away the... The protons, the cripple your swimmers, yeah. cripple the swimmers. Now, yeah. I, I talked to John Aitken, who is a um, biologist that works out of the University of New, uh, of Newcastle in New South Wales, uh, and he mentioned that sure, this this might look promising, but HV one is also present in plenty of other places in the body, including the brain. And if right. you're going to go and start meddling around, uh, you're going to want to make damn sure that you're not going to be uh, messing with anything else. Yep. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SAR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. So for our final news story, we have, um, finally, this is long coming for, for several of us in the studio, um, the medical journal The Lancet redacted the article linking the MMR vaccine with autism last Tuesday. This is a um, bit of a big victory for us vaccination fans. Um, The article in question was published in 1998, so it did take them a little bit over a decade to actually finally shoot it down. Um, But the the study was eventually discredited, and the lead author, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, was found to have acted unethically in conducting the research. The General Medical Council quotes, there was a biased selection of patients in the Lancet paper, and... His conduct in this regard was dishonest and irresponsible. Now, among the things that he did in this published paper was um, he subjected some, st- some children in the study to really invasive procedures like colonoscopies, um, which anyone who's had a colonoscopy knows that it's unpleasant. You have, to, you have to be anesthetized and lots of air gets blown up your bum. And he also gave them MRI scans and 
He paid some of the children at his son's birthday party to give him blood samples for his research. Um, the General Medical Council said that this shows a callous disregard for the distress and pain of the children. In response to the retraction, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention praised the Lancet's retraction, saying, It builds on the overwhelming body of research by the world's leading scientists that concludes that there is no link between the MMR vaccine and autism. We want to remind parents that vaccines are very safe and effective and that they save lives. Parents who have questions about the safety of vaccines should talk to their pediatrician or their child's health care provider. Unfortunately, um, my sense of it is that after a decade of having this tenuous link, the damage has already been done. To some degree. I mean, OK, look, the vaccine has been vindicated and that, that's wonderful. The anti-vaccination network in Australia looks like it's going to be closed down because Meryl Dorry, the president, has resigned and she was the moving force and without her it's probably going to collapse. And if there's no lasting scientific support for them, it's just going to be those people who distrust vaccines on principle who don't have any good reason for it, they just don't like them or they're afraid of them. Was this paper the only evidence that, uh, that vaccinations caused autism? It was the main evidence. It was, uh, it was not just Dr. Wakefield. He also had supporting authors, but um, three years ago they all dropped their claims at, as to any scientific proof. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, since then, there's been a ton of studies that have come out saying there's no proof. Yeah. But it was yes. it was the main one, and if you if you think of the Lancet, it's um, I was explaining to you earlier. It's like it's like science. It's like nature for medicine. You know, it's like it's the Lancet. So it's it's pretty surprising that they would sh- they would even publish such a study, such yes. a controversial study, without looking really deep into it. But um, apparently, uh, Dr. Wakefield has also been linked with uh, conflicts of interest. You were saying earlier. Yeah, I heard briefly on. Uh, on another show this morning that uh, he was actually marketing uh, a, a, a separate vaccination himself. I won't say any more because I'm not very clued up on the matter. But, um, you know, for someone that uh, doesn't know much about the, the vaccination debate, um, can you tell me, say I've had my children vaccinated, what danger does an unvaccinated child pose to my child if, if they have been vaccinated? Well, that's a really good point that um, a lot of people don't understand about vaccines is um, vaccines are really a public health initiative. So a vaccine won't protect your child 100% against catching mumps or rubella or whooping cough. Um, and, and the whole point of having vaccination plans in children is to have most of those children vaccinated, which means it's a lot harder for the disease to persist in a population. So if you've got like only 60% vaccination rate, there's still 40% of the population that can act as a reservoir for this disease. And that means that your vaccinated child could get sick because the disease is around in high enough proportions. And that vaccine isn't a 100% proposition. Exactly. But it is good enough that if enough people get vaccinated, it's a very good preventative measure. And those extra 40%, they don't just keep the virus alive in the population, they give it a chance to evolve past the protections of the vaccine. That's right. So the unvaccinated children are still putting your child at risk over and above what the vaccine wouldn't otherwise be able to help them with. So viruses need hosts, essentially. They need hosts and they need time. They can't just live around in the air and wait for somebody. Well, that's how how, um, smallpox was exterminated. And polio was nearly nearly there until there was that epidemic breakout. But There are illnesses that don't need hosts, like anthrax. 
they can just sit around as spores, right. but they're not so common. Yeah. And one thing that, that makes it so difficult for people to comprehend how important vaccines are is how well they actually work. I mean, if you if you speak to anybody who's lived in the 1920s, they will remember what polio was like. But because no one's really been, um, in our generation, has really been exposed to how devastating that disease can be, then, well, pricking your child and having them have a sick day and maybe exposing them to potential autism, although now we know that's not true, that seems like a far greater risk than actually having your child have polio. Hmm. Yeah, it's a whole different world. Um, back when we did a, a vaccination special, I had a bit of a documentary from the 50s when all this was kind of new. I think it was the 50s that it was happening when all this came in. And just you have all these kids that are either in beds or they're on crutches or wheelchairs. Iron lungs. Iron lungs. They're just so... Whole generations just totally... You know, ruined lives, and it just doesn't happen anymore, and it's so easy to avoid. In the all-out fight against polio, led by the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, there were many years of struggle and heartbreak. Parents lived in fear of polio's sudden attack and the tragic aftermath. Thousands upon thousands of children and adults fell prey to the crippler. March of Dimes funds were needed everywhere needed desperately by patients, needed by an army of scientists who searched for a preventive. Your child or any member of your family eligible for polio vaccine in your community should be vaccinated now. Vaccination now will save lives from death or paralysis this year. Make use of increasing supplies of vaccine. Help your child grow up strong and straight, free from crippling polio. Youngsters, are part of a bright new future. A future which will see the unconditional surrender of infantile paralysis. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond, Aaron Cook, Mark West. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR Sydney with technical support by Mark West. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.